Welcome to Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in the listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much today, and I would like to uh, welcome everyone as well to today's Cancer Connect Education Workshop, Caring for Your Loved One with Cancer. And today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Pharmaceutics LLC, and AbbVie Company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen's Scientific Affairs, LLC, and a grant from Genentech. And I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, we have many people on the program today. We have over 200 participants on this program today. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, uh, suburban, and um, frontier communities. And we also have international participants today from Canada, Norway, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of global call as well. And we're delighted to have so many of you on the call today. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Guadalupe Palos. And Dr. Palos is former Clinical Protocol Administration Manager, Office of Cancer Survivorship, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, author and researcher in health disparities, caregiving, and survivorship. And Dr. Palos will be addressing definition of a caregiver, what research tells us about caregivers' well-being, and caregiving for older adults, younger adults, and siblings of all ages. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Palos. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's a distinct honor and pleasure to be a part of this esteemed faculty who will follow these introductory remarks. In the next few moments, I'll focus on three areas. First, I'll begin with some general information about who is a caregiver. Next, we'll discuss what research tells us about the negative and positive aspects of being a caregiver. And then I will close with some general thoughts about how culture, COVID, and telemedicine has been affecting caregiving and caregivers. So what is caregiving? Or more important, who is a caregiver? The narrow definition of caregiving is simple. If a person gives care, then that person is caregiving. According to a report from the Institute of Medicine, Family members, friends, and other unpaid caregivers are the backbone for much of the care provided to cancer patients in the United States. Yet their role is often unappreciated, and many caregivers support the patients at significant cost to their own physical, emotional, and financial well-being. The broader definition or the more formal definition for an informal caregiver refers to individuals, and these can be adults, uh, children, uh, spouses, parents, friends, or neighbors, who provide care, which is typically unpaid for and usually at home and involves significant amounts of time and energy for months or years and requires the performance of tasks that, again, may be physically, emotionally, socially, or financially demanding. While caregivers vary in their relationships to patients, the work they do follows similar patterns. And I, if many of you who are the caregivers on this call right now or patients who have caregivers, you know what those tasks are. They manage patient symptoms and side effects, assist with daily living skills, perform wound care, manage medication, uh, provide emotional support, and on and on and on. And that's probably why you're always so tired. This work is in addition to the previous or usual roles and responsibilities, which may include full part-time employment outside the home, caring for young children, or caring for other household matters. So what does the research tell us about caregivers' well-being? Caregiver health has become a hot topic of current scientific research because it could be related to prevention, believe it or not. If more attention and assistance is given to caregivers, they will experience fewer physical and psychological impairments. And why is that important? Because a healthy caregiver can provide better health and care um, for uh, their patient. 
Literature reviews and meta-analysis document the association between greater mental health burden and poor physical well-being. In fact, research indicates there's a cascade effect on the caregiver's health. Responsibilities and stressful experiences related to the caregiver role often lead to depression, anxiety, worry, and loneliness. These effects can then result in fatigue, sleep impairment, and unhealthy behavior. And then these effects can cause a decline in immunity and can be associated with the onset of other diseases. This cascade effect affects both the patient and the caregiver because if a caregiver becomes ill, who will care for their loved one? Discuss how the poor physical health of cancer patients is linked to a deterioration of physical health in caregivers, yet research indicates there are positive aspects of caregiving. The National Opinion Research Center conducted a, a survey and found that 83% of caregivers viewed it as being a positive experience. Many family caregivers report positive experience that included a sense of giving back to someone who has cared for them, the satisfaction of knowing that their loved one is getting excellent care, personal growth, increased meaning, and purpose in one life, one's life. Some caregivers feel that they are passing on a tradition of care and that by modeling caregiving, their children will be more likely to care for them or others if necessary. Research also indicates that culture or unequal access to resources needed to provide the care will influence caregivers' health. For instance, in traditional societies, old age is valued based on the belief that older people are a source of experience and knowledge. On the other hand, some Western societies see older people as a burden in their families or even society. Caregiving patterns also differ by ethnic or minority groups. In a meta-analysis of 116 studies, Asian Americans were found to provide more caregiving hours compared to whites. Other studies indicated that African Americans and, and Hispanic caregivers were more likely to decrease their work hours to care for sick relatives over reluctant to use nursing homes. And studies show other types of patterns and uh, variation in those patterns among groups. These findings show the need for additional research studies that compare caregiving norms and practices across diverse cultures. Caregiving responsibilities can increase and change depending on the age of the patient and their needs. This variation in responsibility may also be a source of additional strength on the caregiver. Although most caregivers are women, research indicates there are subgroups of caregivers which are often overlooked. These, study, these groups include male, male caregivers, children or adolescent caregivers, or young adult caregivers. Studies indicate that children and adolescents referred to as caregiving youth are also serving as caregivers for sick or disabled parents, siblings, or other relatives. Another subgroup that care, care um, are grandparents, who also may have their own disabilities or chronic conditions. And between 12 to 18 percent of the total adult caregivers in the U.S. are estimated between the, to be between the ages of 18 and 24, a group known as emerging adults. So I'd like to spend the last few moments addressing how COVID and telemedicine impact caregivers. We found that many cancer care and treatment services were either canceled or indefinitely postponed during the early part of the COVID pandemic. So if the caregivers had no, no longer had access to healthcare services they were accustomed to or depended on, they had to assume more responsibilities. Luckily, the pandemic opened the door for the development of telehealth interventions aimed at cancer patients. And as a result, these same telemedicine tools are now being directed toward addressing the needs of caregivers. Caregivers as well as patients are increasingly using apps and web-based interventions to cope with their uncertainty and to um, deal with their need for information. Caregivers need to be informed and prepared to deal with patient symptoms and side effects, and they also will have better knowledge to counter their fears of inadequacy. Additional research in this area will help shed light on how to integrate telemedicine as a routine piece of patient care, and also how it can be used to help caregivers use to address and alleviate unique challenges. Caregiving is an important public health issue that affects the quality of life for millions of individuals. There is no doubt that caregivers face numerous challenges during the cancer journey. Challenges related to decision-making, which you'll hear more about from Dr. Shum. Challenges related to managing side effects or being a long-distance caregiver, which Ms. Kapoor Henson will address. 
And Ms. Arley and Dr. Messner will provide practical tips and resources that can help support caregiving and managing their self-care and information needs. So in closing, I'd like to ask you to do something with me. I ask you to draw a picture in your mind of caregiving. What would it look like? Or how would you explain being a caregiver to a stranger? Our next speakers will provide information and tips that may help define that picture or explanation. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Paulos. That was really extraordinary and wonderful and really set the stage for today's program. Um, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Elaine Shum. And Dr. Shum is Assistant Professor of Hematology and Medical Oncology, Lauren Isaac, Promoter Cancer Center, NYU Langone Health. And Dr. Shum will be addressing the important role of the caregiver on the healthcare team in decision-making in the context of COVID-19 and its variants, care coordination, challenges, and tips, guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, quality of life concerns, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Shum. Thank you, Dr. Messner, for the introduction, and thank you, Dr. Palos, who also gave a great introduction to this topic, um, so I apologize for any overlap in our presentation. Uh, but again, I've been asked today to discuss about how important caregivers are, uh, but even more so during the COVID-19 pandemic, and I'll offer some tips about how to navigate the healthcare system during this time, um, especially given the many changes that occurred as a result of the pandemic and how cancer care is conducted. As many of you know, the COVID-19 pandemic changed the world in many ways, but in particular, it forced many of us to change the way that we practice medicine. Social distancing, social distancing visitor restrictions, and the time of social isolation many of us were in during the year 2020 had us rethink how to practice safely, particularly for our cancer patients. Uh, we recognized that for our cancer patients, many of whom were on chemotherapy or immunotherapy medications, that they may have been at a greater risk of COVID infection, and we wanted to look for ways to keep our patients as safe as possible. This led to many cancer centers and medical oncology offices uh, to adopt changes that restricted the number of visitors that patients could be accompanied by at their appointments. And this became particularly challenging at initial consultations for new diagnoses, as well as unfortunately many patients physically had to come to appointments alone uh, without a physical support system or even as just as big of a support system that they might have usually come with if it hadn't been for the pandemic. Uh, this really forced us to uh, look for other creative ways to try to make sure that fam uh, patients were supported in the clinic you know, during these difficult uh, conversations. Um, and so having family and friends sometimes FaceTiming into these appointments or calling in family members who could not attend, you know, we tried to do that in order to um, have them be somewhat present during these conversations. Uh, these appointments um, are not only just for patients who uh, were newly diagnosed and, you know, having to hear what was um, upcoming in terms of their care, but even for our um, follow-up patients uh, where review of imaging or discussion of change of treatment or even end-of-life discussions also face these similar circumstances. And so having the caregivers um, still part of these appointments was something that was extremely important during the pandemic uh, for, you know, I would say most people who are involved in cancer care was trying to maintain. Uh, but despite not being able to have the physical presence of the patient support system being there, again, the role of the caregiver became even more crucial and important to the care of our patients. You know, many patients were not leaving home other than for medical appointments, and so caregivers actually became the eyes and ears for many physicians in regards to how patients were doing at home when they might have more easily just come to the appointment um, come to an appointment in the clinic for an urgent assessment. Uh, but during, you know, the peak of the pandemic, definitely um, I can say firsthand that as a physician, you know, we spoke um, very much so to caregivers, especially those um, who are very involved in the care uh, for patients who might have not been able to speak for themselves in order to really try to get an assessment of what was happening at home and trying to determine whether a patient needed to come in um, or not. Another important point is regarding caregivers serving as active advocates for their loved ones. You know, COVID-19 led to such a huge influx of patients to our hospitals that many were triaged quickly and many patients were often alone in the hospital as no visitors were permitted with them. 
and it might have been difficult for family members to get information about their loved ones um, in the hospital. Of course, we wish this weren't the case, and so I think the most important thing during that time uh, was having family members actively trying to call hospitals and reach the units that their loved ones were admitted to uh, in order to get those daily updates um, and also to advocate and speak for their patients' um, loved ones um, as well. And a lot of this can really go a long way in terms of having the caregivers still part of the active care of, of the patients. So what were some of the challenges that we faced uh, during the pandemic, in particular regarding care coordination? So we spoke a bit about how visitor restrictions left many patients alone in the clinic and without their regular physical support. Uh, this was particularly challenging for patients who might have not have been as health savvy or as good with details about their care or who typically relied on their caregivers to help with those details such as their next appointments and you know, when their imaging was scheduled. Um, as mentioned before, you know, having caregivers FaceTimed in or conference called into the appointment um, you know, definitely is something that should be thought about before the patient comes in for the visit um, in order to maintain that um, communication. In addition, some of the things that we saw was that um, home health aides or nursing services um, might not have been able to come into the home during the pandemic because of the fear of uh, COVID-19 transmission. And so, uh, again, caregivers became extremely important during this time um, in order to help assist during those times when um, skilled nursing or home health aides were unable to come in um, as well. Um, as Dr. Palos also mentioned uh, before, was about many treatments became delayed because of COVID. So um, something that's really important is that if a patient were to develop any symptoms or suspected to have COVID, it's very important to call the doctor's office uh, to let them know about this, um, may require having COVID testing, and to keep them up to date about what the testing results are. Again, this is just to keep the patient safe and others safe around them. But also very importantly is to uh, follow up and see when the appointments are rescheduled. So if um, treatment appointments are delayed because of the COVID uh, positivity perhaps, uh, just making sure that um, the appointment was rescheduled and you know, continue to follow up with the physician's office so that um, no treatments are missed um, just because of perhaps human error. Uh, so telehealth became such a big thing during the pandemic. I would say that before the pandemic, I really didn't have any telehealth visits, uh, but again, the pandemic really forced many of us to look into this option. Uh, so some tips and guidelines to prepare for these healthcare, uh, telehealth visits would be, you know, most basically is to uh, check your internet connectivity before the visit, checking your microphone and your video to make sure that those are working so that you can have a smooth appointment uh, with the physician or other healthcare provider. Um, for new consultations or second opinions, um, you know, trying to make sure that all of the medical records are sent over in advance, um, you know, whether that's a telehealth visit or not, that's always really helpful just so that you can have a good conversation uh, with the consultant uh, before your, uh, during your visit. And having a list of questions prepared in advance, um, that really does help, um, you know, when you're just looking at a screen, sometimes the flow of conversation might not be the same as if you're sitting in the room with someone uh, directly. Also importantly is discussing and bringing up any symptoms or side effects. Um, again, just looking at someone on the screen, you often can't even see their whole body. You know, sometimes, you know, physicians, when we see you, we're trying to make an assessment. We might not see like a rash on your arm or a bruise as we might have seen um, if you're in our office uh, directly. Um, and it, and um, also a full exam is not done on the telehealth visit, of course, as well as there's no blood work usually for us to review. So we really rely on what you tell us um, in order to help us, you know, care for you um, on a telehealth visit. Um, if it's a new consultation, I think finding out about other team members that would be involved in the care, such as a nurse or a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant that might not be on the virtual visit with you and the physician, um, is also important to ask about and also to ask, you know, what would be the best way to reach them after the appointment as well. And before the call ends, um, make sure you find out when the next appointment should be, whether it should be in person or virtually, because uh, in the office, usually we would send you to our receptionists or secretaries to help schedule the next appointment, uh, but virtually they don't have uh, quite the same workflow. And so um, I think just being clear about uh, finding out when the next appointment is and how best to make sure that appointment is made is also really important. 
Lastly, uh, many of you might have noticed in the last year um, the ability to see your physician's notes in the electronic medical record. Um, this is something that's been referred to as open notes to allow patients to have access to all of their medical records. Uh, this has been really helpful, especially in the time of COVID-19, to help potentially help fill in the gaps that might have resulted from not having as many caregivers present in the appointment and so that the plan of care could be clear. Uh, so I think it's important to just know that many of these notes are written from the health professional standpoint, so there might be some big terminology in, the, in there that might not be as clear from a layman's perspective. Uh, but of course, it's always important to ask questions um, you know, as you see them. Also, you might have seen that um, lab results and imaging results um, often are automatically released to patients. Um, I'll say from the medical oncology point of view, this has been somewhat challenging because these results sometimes are released to patients even before their primary oncologist saw the results. So I think it's always important to discuss these with the oncologist um, with, before making any conclusions about what you read in the reports or even to just start Googling the results because Googling can sometimes lead you down a rabbit hole, and I think it's really best to try to speak to your oncologist directly about the results um, before coming to your own conclusions. Uh, so with that, I, I turn the program uh, back to Dr. Messner, and I look forward to your questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Shum. That was really outstanding as well, and really um, gave a lot of very helpful and important tips for everybody on this call. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker, is Ms. Nina Kapoor Hinson, and Ms. Hinson is a supportive care nurse practitioner, advanced practice provider, manager, supportive care, geriatric oncology, and integrative medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Ms. Kapoor Hinson will be addressing advanced directives, power of attorney and healthcare proxy, the role of the caregiver in preventing and managing treatment side effects and discomfort, and the role of a long distance caregiver. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Kapoor Hinson. Thank you very much, Dr. Messner, for inviting me to speak today, and it's my great pleasure to speak with all of you. Um, I'll start off by talking about the power of attorney and healthcare proxy, which are really um, very helpful documents to just be aware of um, and to complete. Um, so that way you're prepared in the case of any um, uh, crisis situation or, or uh, emergent situation. So first off, what is a power of attorney? A power of attorney is a legal document giving one person called the agent or attorney in fact, the power to act for another person um, known as a principal. The authority that's given can be broad or can be limited a durable power of attorney takes effect once the document is signed and stays in effect even if the principal becomes incapacitated. A springing power of attorney comes into effect only if and when the principal becomes incapacitated. We all know power of attorneys um, are usually utilized for financial matters, but this can also be signed to apply uh, to medical matters only allowing the agent to make crucial decisions on behalf of an incapacitated person. We refer to this as a healthcare power of attorney, also known as a healthcare proxy. This document gives the appointed agent legal authority to oversee medical care decisions on behalf of the principal if the principal is not able to make that decision for themselves. You can establish a healthcare proxy or a power of attorney by downloading the correct form from your state and healthcare proxy forms are also available uh, from your uh, clinician's office or from your uh, medical center. Um, a healthcare proxy does not need to be notarized. It only requires the signature of the principal and two witnesses. Um, a power of attorney may require notarized signatures by both the principals and the witnesses, but this varies from state to state. So a tip with any of these, if you are appointed as an agent for a principal, it's important to talk with your loved one about their values, wishes, and preferences to ensure that you're aware of um, the decisions that they would make for themselves. <clears throat> now I'll talk about the role of the caregiver in preventing and managing treatment side effects and discomfort. The role of the caregiver in optimizing the course of a patient with cancer is crucial. Friends and relatives take care of patients, and you have a far greater impact on a patient's experience of their illness and their happiness than can any healthcare professional. When undergoing cancer care, 
patients can experience a wide range of symptoms that can be directly or indirectly related to cancer. Indirect symptoms can occur from side effects of tumor-directed treatments like chemotherapy, surgery, or radiation uh, treatments, or from side effects of other prescribed medications like constipation or nausea from opioids that may be used to treat pain. Uncontrolled symptoms lead to more urgent care or emergency room visits and can lead to hospitalization. They carry a financial, emotional, and time burden toll for both patients and caregivers and can delay cancer-directed treatments. When patients are feeling overwhelmed or unwell, it's often challenging for them to remember when and how to utilize medications and other techniques to improve their symptoms and control them well. Caregivers can help by checking in with patients regularly, asking about specific symptoms, and the general health of patients. Caregivers can prompt patients to address their symptoms by reviewing the purpose and schedule of symptom relief medications, reminding patients to utilize these interventions, and also communicate with the medical team about any uncontrolled symptom burden. Caregivers can keep note of patterns of symptoms, like nausea occurring for six days after each dose of chemotherapy. This information is very helpful when provided to clinicians, so we can be proactive about symptom management. So some tips when it comes to um, preventing and managing side effects. Attend the oncology appointment with your loved one if you can. Two sets of ears are better than one. Take notes on what symptoms to anticipate and how to treat them. If it would be helpful to get a written summary, ask your clinician. Check in regularly with your loved one. Ask questions about their general health and well-being and their physical activity. If something is limited in any way, probe further and ask why. Notify the clinical team if a symptom is uncontrolled. No symptom is too small to report. Be as specific as possible. For example, my mother is not eating because food tastes really bad. She has lost five pounds in the past two weeks. Or my spouse is having pain in the area of his tumor, but he's not taking the prescribed medications because they make him constipated. Details like this help clinicians tailor their approach to your loved one. Now I'll shift to the role of the long-distance caregiver. The National Institute of Health defines a long-distance caregiver as someone who lives an hour or more away from a loved one. There are many ways that long-distance caregivers can help, including financial, evaluating the home environment for safety, providing emotional support for the patient, or for a primary caregiver who may be there um, for the day-to-day providing interval manage, uh, interval respite for a day-to-day caregiver, and also is serving as an information coordinator between family members and the healthcare team. Some tips if you are a long-distance caregiver. Learn about your loved one's health, treatments, and available caregiving resources. This will help you understand what is going on and anticipate the course of an illness. It'll help you to prevent crises and assist in healthcare management. One point about crises, if you are not close by, please establish a safety net um, uh, uh, plan in case there is a urgent need for your loved one. Organize important paperwork in one place and provide copies to other caregivers. This should include up-to-date health care documents, any wills and financial information. Make sure at least one caregiver has written permission to receive medical and financial information. To the extent possible, one person should handle conversations with all healthcare providers. Plan your visits to your loved one. Find out in advance what that person would like to do and what, the prim- what would be helpful for the primary caregiver if there is one. Plan simple and relaxing activities that will help to build fun memories. Stay connected to your loved ones. <clears throat> Schedule calls with the healthcare providers to discuss your loved one's well-being and update your family members on your loved one's condition. <clears throat> and consider caregiver training. Local chapters of the American Red Cross and other nonprofit organizations may offer caregiving courses. Medicare and Medicaid will sometimes cover the cost of these trainings. And now I'll turn it back to Dr. Messner. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Kapoor Hinton. That was really an outstanding presentation, and 
um, really appreciate your being on this call to cover these topics. Really important for our participants, um, for our caregivers to hear about this. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Ms. Allison Arade. And Ms. Arade is an oncology social worker, and she is our caregiver program coordinator at Cancer Care. And Ms. Arade will be addressing stresses on family, partners, friends, and loved ones, coping with holidays, birthdays, and special occasions, managing couples, family, partners, friends, and traditions, and practical tips for managing caregivers' stress and strategies for self-care. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Arati. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner, and um, thank you so much for having me um, on today's program. So caring for a person with cancer can be stressful for everybody involved, including the patient themselves, um, family, partners, friends, other loved ones. And caregiving can be so challenging for many reasons, um, but one reason is that new stressors can arise throughout the cancer experience. So some common challenges that caregivers you all may be experiencing that can lead to stress and burnout may be financial strain, workplace issues, um, anticipatory grief, balancing caregiver responsibilities with your own personal responsibilities, and, and much more. And the unfortunate piece is that sometimes caregivers, you don't always recognize that you are burnt out until it may feel too late. Um, so sign, signs of burnout can include getting sick more easily with the common colds or flu, uh, difficulty concentrating, prolonged feelings of um, hopelessness, chronic anxiety, impatience, irritability. Um, so it is incredibly important for you all as caregivers to take a moment to pause, right? Reflect and think about, okay, am I having difficulty concentrating? Am, am I experiencing changes in my, my sleeping habits? Um, and from there, you know, really focus on practicing some self-care and, of course, reaching out to your support network to help mitigate burnout. And not only can caregiving create stressors through the cancer experience, it can also cause stressors in the personal life of caregivers like special occasions or traditions. So caregiving during times like birthdays or holidays, anniversaries can be very challenging, but there are ways to manage these days the best that you can. And you can start with talking to your loved one's medical team about what is safe and feasible. So you and your loved one may want to address expectations, maybe even establish new traditions, depending on your comfort level, your loved one's comfort level, and the medical team's recommendations. Talking with your loved ones about what a particular day might mean to them, and really focus on enjoying those moments that you do get to spend together, even if it may look or feel different. Caregivers and patients can work together to adjust and create new traditions. And the pressure to keep up with traditions, it can be heavy. So absolutely give yourself that permission to create those new ones, but also take um, take advantage of technology, right? Um, this is definitely something that a lot of us have done since the start of the pandemic. Um, so using things like Skype or Zoom, FaceTime, so you can still connect with family and friends safely. As a caregiver, you may feel a sense of loss or sadness because a special occasion or a tradition has changed. So it is important to acknowledge your own feelings and know that you are doing your best. And depending on your circumstance, a primary caregiver may be the sole caregiver or one of many. Aside from a primary caregiver, um, family, friends, other loved ones, uh, coworkers or colleagues may take part in caregiving for a person with cancer. And a great way to get family or friends, loved ones involved in caregiving is um, spreading the word. So creating an account on websites like My Cancer Circle um, so they can read updates, but also volunteer to help support the person diagnosed as well as the primary caregiver. The role that family, friends, and other loved ones take is such an important one because they can offer the primary caregiver some respite but also provide that additional support to the person with cancer. 
And these caregivers may not live with the person with cancer or be at each appointment, but the care that they offer is invaluable. And caregivers, primary or long distance, have the right to care for themselves. And even with all the obstacle caregivers face, there are ways to reduce feelings of stress and anxiety. Some self-care techniques that you can practice as a caregiver could include journaling, um, creating routines, progressive muscle relaxation, deep breathing, um, low-impact fitness, yoga, walking, and many, many other mindfulness practices. Joining support groups, engaging in individual support, but also participating in um, educational workshops like the one that you are doing today are also really important ways to reduce stress and anxiety, but also reduce feelings of isolation. All discussed can also help with the management of stress and promote caregiver resilience. It's important to always remember self-care is going to look different for all of us. So we can practice self-care by also simply taking care of ourselves, you know, getting enough rest at night, eating nutritious meals, um, you know, keeping up with your own medical appointments, your own prescriptions. Um, so we can also practice self-care in, in these ways as well, just taking care of our physical health as well. Um, and all of these things, whether it be catering to our physical health, um, our mental health, all of those can absolutely help promote caregiver resilience and, again, mitigate that caregiver stress and burnout. And with that, I will pass it back over to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Mr. Mr. Roddy. That was really outstanding and just wonderful tips for um, caregivers and also stress management tips, so important. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. I'm just going to say a few words about the free services that you can access from Cancer Care. Um, and um, many people in the United States will call our Hope Line. It's an 800 number, and um, it's 800-813-4673. And um, we have about 40 master's level trained oncology social workers, and they will answer the phone when you call. And, and you, usually people identify their concern or question what they want help with, and then um, the social worker will assist with that and then go over all the other services with them. So what are all the other services? So first of all, people can get support from Cancer Care from one of our oncology social workers. They also can get practical uh, financial and co-payment assistance, which is really important at this time. Many people are struggling with the costs of care, um, uh, the cost sometimes cost of food and housing. These are all issues that people have concerns about. Um, we also offer online support groups, and many people like those because they happen, not like this program in real time, but they actually happen, they're going on 24 hours a day. It means that you can post any time of the day or night, and you can actually um, either post something or listen to someone else's concerns. And our oncology social workers do moderate those programs so that it is professionally moderated. We also offer um, wellness circles, which are uh, smaller groups in which people um, are in Zoom meetings will get together and talk about different issues and concerns. And many of them are posted. There are any different types, and they're posted on our website as well. Um, our website is www.cancercare.org. You will all be getting a survey monkey after today's program, probably tomorrow. And in that survey monkey, there is any reference, any resource that we gave during the program today and there were a number of them given out by our speakers, we will be posting them on the um, evaluation that you'll be getting in SurveyMonkey. So it's an evaluation plus resources as well. Um, and in addition, we do offer these workshops, about 75 of them per year, both on different types of cancers and different types of topics. Um, and we also um, offer a number of publications that gives you a thumbnail sketch of many of the services that Cancer Care offers, and um, we hope you'll take advantage of them. Um, uh, to assist you. And so now um, I'm going to ask Sadat to actually bring on all of our speakers, and we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. And um, Sadat will explain to you how to queue up for questions. Thank you, Dr. Messner. And ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask questions, please press star, then the number one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish 
to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. So this is a, a really good question. Um, this is for Dr. Palos. What, and this is from one of our online participants. What are some notes I should be taking at home about my father's health and let his healthcare team know? Oh, that's an excellent question. Thank you uh, for that question. I, if you can just start with a notebook, or it doesn't have to be fancy, uh, you know, that way you can keep everything together. Some of the things you want to talk about is just we see any changes, not only in physical type of, of uh, conditions, uh, more sleepiness, more tiredness, loss of appetite, those types of things you really want to keep um, a, an eye on. But also look at the emotional aspects of what's of the changes that are going on with your loved one. Do they seem sadder? Are they kind of withdrawn? Are they not um, interacting with others? Are they saying, I'm not hungry a lot of the times, or I don't have an appetite a lot of the times? Those are the types of things, of course, that you'd want to let the healthcare provider know, um, particularly if you see that it's in you know, becoming a pattern um, um, in your loved one. The other things you want to look for, too, are there any changes in pain, levels of pain, fatigue? Um, are there any changes in what they're experiencing when they take their medications? Are there sleepiness or their dizziness coming up. Um, you know, some folks have explained to me when they get a little bit of cognitive impairment, they say, I have a foggy brain. So some people may not use the terms that we're used to hearing, cognitive impairment, nausea, vomiting. They may use their own terms to describe the, the, the symptoms or the side effects or the feelings that they have. Um, some people don't like to use the word distress. So if you hear someone saying, I feel really sad or I feel blue, I just you know, don't feel the way I used to, those are the types of things that you'd like to to keep track of. Other things that are very important are things like bowel movements. Are they having regular bowel movements, especially if they're on pain medications? Um, so it's, it's it's quite a list. And I'm sure if you go to some of the websites like Cancer Care and um, the American Cancer Society, they can also give some ideas of the types of uh, changes and that you'd like to keep track of and communicate to your uh, provider. And we always think we're going to have those or we're going to remember them. So that's why it's good to document them and take them with you. Um, I, am, I can't tell you enough how much the providers appreciate seeing a list of questions when you come in, so that way they can address them. You know, I've seen providers go to the list and say, hey, did I answer this question well enough? Did I answer this question? So don't hesitate to share those uh, documents or those logs with your providers, uh, and I hope that helps in some way. Excellent. Does anyone want to add to that question? This is kind of like really a wonderful answer to it, but you want to add anything to it? Or Dr. Shum, do you want to add anything to it? Any kinds of things that people should be sure to mention to their doctor? Yeah, no, I think it's been covered really well, but I think, um, you know, just um, being prepared with all the questions is definitely very helpful to us as physicians. Okay. Um, this one from Mr. Narodi. I feel like our families have treated my spouse and I differently since my diagnosis, as if we are both so fragile and they are sorry for us. As a result, there has been so much negative energy. How can I help create a more positive atmosphere? Ms. Roddy, would you want to comment on that? So I would start with open communication. Um, and I think each time I'm on, I'm on these workshops, I, I mention this. Um, because a lot of the time, people around us, our family and friends, they don't know how to talk with us when something like cancer has touched our family or our friends, um, there tends to be an assumption that uh, just just like this this person said that they are, that this is, it, it's fragile, right? And that they're fearful of what to say. Um, family and friends don't want to upset you. Um, and they just, they don't know how, how to say it and what to, and how to approach the situation. So the best way is to have that open communication, talking with your family about how you're feeling, right, with the interactions 
um, between you and them, but also, you know, in maybe making some sort of plan to get together, um, making plans to create, you know, more positive moments, happy memories, um, new experiences. But the the first step is going to be just that, that open communication about how you and your spouse are feeling um, with kind of this change in the interaction that you have with, with your family. And and hopefully from there, um, there'll be, you know, a better understanding between you and and your family that, you know, no, we can we can still, you know, enjoy enjoy each other's company and create new experiences um and that, you know, that that is all welcome. That, you know, positivity and, and happiness and laughter and all of that is, is something that is welcomed by you and, and your spouse. Excellent, thank you. And um, a question for Miss um, Kapoor Hinson. My brother lives an hour away from us, but rarely helps out. How can I ask him to help take care of our father? That's a wonderful question. Um, thank you for that. Um, so oftentimes, loved ones may be more engaged or less engaged in the care of um, of a family member, and what I would suggest is really if you need help, um, ask for it, right? So if um, there, if you're able to just come right out to your brother and say, you know, it would be really helpful if you could look into this insurance issue for us or it would be really helpful if you would do this. Sometimes just um, uh, offering up suggestions of how they could be helpful uh, could be um, uh, something that reminds them or, or just just prompts them to participate. Um, your brother may not know how um, to be helpful living so far away. So I think just um, uh, providing those suggestions could uh, go a long way. Awesome. Thank you. And um, for Dr. Palos, do you have any tips for young adults um, taking care of a parent? Oh, gosh. That's a... That's a hard question because young adults, if we're talking the 18, um, 24 age group, they're trying to get on with their lives and um, they're just starting new adventures, new jobs, um, new um, families, you know, might be budding up. So it it is going to put more um, pressure and more strain on on that caregiver. So I'd like to go back to something I think uh, that was said earlier. Open communication is the best way. So when you have, you know, when you realize you're going to be a caregiver and you're young, that it might be, it will be a good idea to have like a family conference, talk about the things that are going to be needed, and then see how you can uh, negotiate to not only have it all by yourself, but to share among the family members. I think the main message that you want to keep with all this is that you need to have your own self-care and you need to make time for yourself. Your lives are important, and I can't say enough how I see so many caregivers giving up pieces of things that they really enjoyed doing or they cherished doing uh, because they feel guilty if they take the time away uh, from being a caregiver. So I encourage all young adults, you know, seek out information, seek out support, uh, there's lots of services that you've heard about already during this call, but don't feel that you have to shoulder it because after a while you may have feelings of resentment, frustration, and guilt, um, which will just add more to the strain that you have. So be, you know, be candid about what your feelings are and um, negotiate, negotiate, negotiate with any of the family members or friends um, that you may have that you think can help with some of those things. I hope that helps because I know it's very daunting to be a caregiver. And Allison, do you want to mention something about the caregiver, young adults, caregiver support groups that we have? Sure. So we, we do offer a number of um, young adult caregiver support groups. So um, we do offer a live group, um, but we also do offer a handful through our online program, which Dr. Messner mentioned earlier. These are writing-based groups. So we do offer a um, general young adult caregiver support group, a young adult brain tumor caregiver support group, as well as a um, young adult spouses and partners support group. And those are all in addition to our live um, virtual support group. So we, we do have 
um, a lot of different support group options, but we also do have, you know, a young adult program at Cancer Care um, where we do a lot of different, you know, young adult young adult programming within Cancer Care, but also with, with other agencies and organizations. So um, we absolutely have really, really great support for, for our young adult caregivers. Um, thank you. And this will be the last question for Dr. Shum. When is it appropriate to stop caregiving? Oh, no, um, I, I think as a caregiver, it's um, yeah, it's been touched upon already. It's about you know burnout, and so you know the patient, of course, is also very important. But I think the caregiver also is just as important. So I don't think it will ever really end. But I think um, you know having a support for a caregiver is also just as important. And so. Um, if it is too much for a caregiver to uh, take on all of that weight at, at that time, there's absolutely nothing wrong with, you know, trying to get more support in order to still provide care to the patient because, um, you know, I think it's just just so important for the, the team to all be on board and, um, you know, that everyone is doing okay during, you know, what might be a very difficult time. So um, I, don't, I don't think it ever ends. I think there just can be... Uh, ways to change how caregiving is given. Excellent. Thank you. Well, actually, I want to thank all of our speakers. You've really been just phenomenal um, in this program today. Um, I have to say we've done programs on caregiving before, but we've never had such a really multidisciplinary faculty on the program before and um, wonderful speakers and also great questions that you've all been asking, um, uh, very, very good questions and um, really um, it really enhances the program today. And we could go on for another hour because we have many questions in queue. So I want to comment on that. Um, for those of you who either asked a question, have a question yet to ask, or are thinking of another question, please um, take what you've learned today from the program back to your treating healthcare team and discuss it with them. Remember, your healthcare team consists of many different disciplines. Of course, it has your physician. It also has an oncology nurse, an oncology social worker, a supportive care team. It, it also has um, other disciplines that could be helpful to you as you begin to navigate financial specialists, all different patient navigators, different members of that team. So if you bring up a question to your, let's say, your physician, they will connect you to someone on that team who can help you. You also have the option to contact Cancer Care for ongoing help with your questions or concerns that may arise. Um, and to actually seek support. Um, I would urge you to get support that's free just because, well, um, there are many nonprofits out there that offer free support, and that's something that you would want, want to make available to yourselves. Um, most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone um, as a caregiver or in any way in coping with cancer. Um, I want you to know that you're now part of the community of support, and we're all here to help you. And um, I want to thank you for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes today's workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.